0: Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Our next guest is Tracy Keller, founder and president of Kelly Green Unique Wealth Solution. Kelly Green believes putting people in control of their own money and is an independent financial advisory firm focused on specialized wealth building, tax and legacy solutions for individuals and businesses. They embrace effective individual unique financial strategies. They say that personal finance does not have to be complicated or frustrating. Simplifying complex jargon, economic information, and strategy plans is their specialty. All right, Tracy, thanks for joining us today. We're really excited to have you here.
1: Thanks, Tom. I'm definitely excited to be joining you today.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. We're in the middle of the COVID pandemic, so it's always nice to break up the days with a good podcast. How are you guys holding up over there?
1: I cannot complain. Amidst all the craziness, I feel like it's been a pretty... Calm storm here, which has been really great for me because it's enabled me to be there for everybody else amid the chaos. So I'm doing well.
0: Yeah, that's great to hear. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got started? Sure. So
1: I am the owner of Kelly Green Wealth, which is an individual financial firm based out of South Jersey, but we do business across the country. And I also have a development business that focuses on the education and development of female financial advisors. I have been in the financial insurance business for almost 20 years now. And I started out, actually, kind of strangely, after graduating from graduate school at FIT, which is the Fashion Institute of Technology with a marketing degree in New York City. I thought that I wanted to do fashion PR, ended up I wanted to do anything but that. And my father happened to be in the insurance industry and said, why don't you just give this a shot for a while? You know, you like people, you like making your own schedule, and it just stuck. So I worked for a couple of the big companies for a little while and then started seeing that what they were practicing, they weren't exactly preaching and vice versa, and that good people were really trying to be disciplined to do the right thing. And they were still coming up short. And uh, I was at that point, I met some of my great mentors and they introduced me to a more holistic way of dealing with finances, whether it was for an individual, a family or a business owner. And that was in September of 2008. So I quit my big job and in October 2008, went out on my own. And that was when the market crashed. Yeah. So how, how it was how definitely did that... a nice welcome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how did that play out? You have this job. I don't want to say it's cushy, but I'd imagine it was nice. You're at a big firm. Oh, All yeah. of a sudden, you're on your own, and now the Dow's at, you know, <laughs> below $10,000. <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah,
1: I'm not going to lie, Tom didn't go well. (laughs) It was not a happy time, but I'd say just coming out being young into this independent entrepreneurial world at Mm -hmm. the same time that everything crashed. While at the time was miserable. When I look back on it, I actually wouldn't have it any other way because just the life experience, the grit, the hustle and the discipline to stay. I don't know if it was stubbornness or sheer discipline. And now when I look back on that, it just makes me really proud of what I've built. But also, interestingly, as this whole coronavirus pandemic has come up, I thought this is a very similar time period to 2008 in that realm. And I have a whole respect for what people are going through because I remember how terrible it was for me.
0: Let's talk about a more positive subject. So, You said you work with women financial advisors. How has the industry shifted in that regard? Are you seeing more females entering this world of yours?
1: No, actually. So that's why I created this business to help not only just recruit in, because I think the industry is doing a better job of recruiting, but I noticed that they're not retaining. So I got into the business in, I want to say around 2003, and I always used to look around the big conferences and count the amount of women. And, you know, for every 100 men, maybe there were about 10 women. And the numbers have not changed much, especially on the independent side. And yet women hold majority of the private wealth in the country. Women are decision makers now just as much as husbands if they're married. But women are widowed typically earlier. It's usually not the husband outliving the wife. Divorce is prevalent. Not getting married is fine as well. So there's a lot of opportunity and yet the industry is not doing a great job of retaining them. So we've built a development system to not only train but really empower women to create their own normal and their own definition for success within the financial industry.
0: So outside of that, how would you say from 2003 till 2020, how has the industry itself changed?
1: I'm starting to see a little bit more of a change that I like. I still think it's pretty product-centric, focus on one decision at a time, which is not something that I do believe in. But I think it's starting to turn into something that is more people-focused, whereas before it was, let me show you how flashy of an advisor I am and how well I do. I feel like people are coming back to they want a relationship with a trusted advisor, they want to know that that person understands their goals and their challenges and their opportunities. And I think the industry is a little late to follow, but it's getting there. It is.
0: Yeah. And that was going to be my next question. So you see all these major banks and brokerage, they're kind of moving towards the robo advisors. But from my experience, it seems like there's a gap because Just having a diversified portfolio is only part of it. There's taxes and other things that Mm -hmm. come into play. So why don't you tell us more about that and how a brick-and-mortar firm is different than the robo-advisors and some of the benefits that a firm like yours can offer.
1: Absolutely. And by the way, brick-and-mortar is great, but half of what I do is even virtual as well. But it's still the human touch. So the robo-advisor... I think that's fabulous. If you want to throw a thousand dollars into the market or a hundred or whatever it is, that's almost like Vegas money. But the idea that it's just as easy as that to quote unquote financial plan is it's a myth and it only benefits the financial institutions because, like you said, you're absolutely right that that is one small thing. It's not taking into consideration who cares what I get in the market if I'm getting killed in taxes or if I'm paying a ton of fees or if I'm not properly allocated. And you mentioned diversification to me, diversification is not just what kind of stocks, mutual fund holdings are in maybe my IRA. It's do I own real estate? Do I own anything that's guaranteed? Maybe a whole life insurance policy and annuity. Do I own a business? There's so many other asset classes that that's true diversification. And the real component that it's missing is, like you're saying, that human-to-human touch of, does the person I'm working with understand what my goal is? Not what their goal is, what my goal is.
0: Yeah. So who is an ideal client? Do they have to have a net worth of a million dollars enough? Can you help people in all stages of their financial endeavors and things like that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So typically, my ideal client is something that you probably wouldn't expect me to say, but it's somebody who's nice, somebody who's respectable. You know, I like working with nice people and somebody who's coachable. I welcome questions, but sometimes when it comes to money, people aren't as coachable. But from there, I like to make it a rule that I'm not going to turn someone away because there's not a net worth. And I have a team that works with me. So there's a resource for everyone. And I also believe financial resources and financial help should not be a wealthy privilege. And how does one expect to get wealthy if they don't have any access to resource? So even for the young millennial, I don't even know if they're millennials in their early twenties that probably something younger that I'm not even thinking of
0: generation whatever (laughs) generation
1: (laughs) Z or yeah I think there's so much opportunity to starting small and mitigating risk over the long term than waiting until your mid 40s or 50 and going okay now what do I do so I want to be able to have a resource for those type of people you know as well as so many different scenarios and I may not be able to help everyone personally, but I am committed to always finding a resource or a team member being able to help.
0: So Tracy, let's take COVID out of the picture. You know, we'll go back six months ago. Let's say I'm looking for a financial advisor. We meet for coffee or you come over to my house, or maybe it's not you. What are good questions that you should ask a potential financial advisor?
1: So... What I would ask if I was in somebody else's shoes, and it's a great question. Truthfully, when I do meet a new client, often I'd prefer to just say, look, let's just act like we're on a first date. You know, you don't have to marry me today. In fact, if you want to bring all of your documents in your whole life, that's great. But if you want to just feel each other out and get an idea of you don't have to love me, but if you like me and it makes sense, some of the things we're talking about I'm happy to earn the right to look at those things. And we as advisors expect people to know all the right questions to ask. So I really like having a give and take conversation about what that person's goals are, what their experiences have been. And I do want to know what their past financial planning experiences have been. And if there haven't been positive, I would invite them to ask me where I might go differently. And it may not be a strategic question because maybe I don't know their background, so I never give quick advice, but there might be a scenario where they could ask me, how would my firm handle that? I'm happy to talk, discuss fees and compensation. That's always something that a client should know upfront, never go into anything wondering, oh my gosh, you know, am I going to go broke talking to this person? Right. I think credentials are important, but they're really not everything. It's asking about the advisor's experience because who's training all those advisors that have those fancy credentials? Those all those letters behind them. Well, it's the banks. Mm-hmm. It's the financial institutions. So the other question I think a lot of people should ask is, how loyal are you at being the advisor to a specific company or a specific quota? Because one of the things that really pushed me to be independent was if I was with a client that I really didn't have a product that fit their needs, and that's kind of how the industry teaches you, then either one, I can't help you, or two, I'm put in that gray area where I have to try to make something work that doesn't work. So I think that's an important question is what kind of access to not only products and I'd like somebody to ask me if my primary goal with them was to develop a strategy rather than just try to sell a product, whether that's an account, an insurance policy, an investment, whatever, because all those things are great, but without a strategy, it could blow up.
0: Now, let's shift over to the marketing side. I see you have videos on your webpage. You have a little video page. That's a really great idea. When did you first decide to start doing that?
1: I have always been a fan of all kinds of different media and I do love communication in general. I did a radio show uh, six, seven years ago now. And we did it for about three years. It was called Main Street Money and it was kind of a he said, she said take on finances as they relate to the average person on Main Street, not necessarily what Wall Street has to say. So from there, it kind of morphed to videos because not as many people listen. To the radio as they used to. So it's now today, it's videos, it's podcasts. And even during this whole time period, I've been pretty vigilant with putting out a couple weekly videos, whether it's to LinkedIn, different forms of social media. It's a great way to get quick bits of information. And I feel like that tends to be the most popular way that people are learning now, whether it's a podcast or a video.
0: I know it didn't happen exactly yesterday. But how has the tax reform changed some of the way you did business? Well,
1: taxes are always a moving target. And one thing that I will i ask every client is, do you think that you'd like to make more money next year than you did this year or going forward? If yes is the answer, okay. And do you want to retire in the same lifestyle that if not better than you have right now. If the answer is yes, then the final question is, do you think taxes are going up? And it's not very often that I get a no. And even right now with tax reform being, we definitely have a more favorable tax landscape. And depending on what happens from here, there's a talk of even payroll taxes being reformed. And that's going to have a great benefit to businesses and the individual alike. But that being said, is we have to look forward and go with all of the money, even currently being given out in stimulus, and it's great, it's helping with all of the aging baby boomers going on to entitlements such as Medicare, Social Security, and now you have all these unemployment and everything. That money has to come from somewhere. So I try not to focus too much on the fact that right now we have a very favorable tax environment because I don't know what that's going to look like in 20 years.
0: Right. Understood. You just have to use the information that's in front of you right now.
1: I do, but the next 10 years are going to be very telling because this is, like I said, the baby boomers exiting the workforce and entering retirement is a very big variable. And it's plain math because we have never had the largest working force and they were a very productive working force, the largest working force in America now exiting the system and they were paying. So they were propping up the market. They were paying taxes. Now they're exiting and they're no longer propping up the market. They're actually taking from it. And they're now utilizing all these entitlement programs that they paid for all these years. And the working force That's propping it up now just isn't as big and as productive as of right now. So this is a big variable going forward.
0: Yeah, because we have 30 million people lost their jobs as of today. That's not even counting zombie firms. And then we have helicopter money, $2 trillion just going out. So we also have to worry about inflation. And then on top Mm -hmm. of all of that, the entitlements that these people worked very hard for and rightfully deserve their whole life. So.
1: Absolutely. Not to mention the large deficit that's been creeping up. I will sometimes not a fun exercise, but just take clients quickly to the website called usdebtclock.org. And it shows you not only exactly what the current deficit is, but it's like a ticker clock. It's just going up and up and up and up. And it's like, where's the money coming from? <laughs> I think something that could apply to anyone listening right now is the idea of being proactive versus being reactive. And obviously some things we just don't know, right? Who knew that this whole thing was going to happen, but were there some things that people could have done to be proactive? So with a lot of my clients, the first week that this happened, I was on the phone calling everybody, just, you know, do you need anything? How can we be there for you? And it was really nice to know that While they were nervous and they were upset about many things, the plan was not one of them because it wasn't so market risk. And I'm a big fan of the very first, most proactive thing that you can do is just save. I don't care if it's in a savings account. People need three to six months of liquid income. That's a must. Insurances. There's a lot more... Benefit to protecting the downside than there is to chasing a rate of return. So that's another great question to ask an advisor is how can we be proactive? Because it's wonderful to have a financial plan that works when the market's up and you're fully employed and sun shining and there's rainbows everywhere. But what happens when life isn't so perfect? That's when being proactive and taking some steps prior to the rainy day.
0: Happens is critical. Tracy, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions right now. First off, what was your first job and what life lessons did you carry out in other jobs?
1: My first job, and I will call it a job because I did it a lot, was neighborhood babysitter. And when I tell you I babysat a lot, it really was my job for years. So what it taught me was that I Really enjoyed the ability to pick and choose my own hours. I could say yes when I wanted, I could say no, and the ability to work with who I wanted to work with to choose it. When the bad kids' parents at the end of the street asked me to babysit, no, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I would say I was a born entrepreneur from that.
0: What book are you reading right now?
1: So I've actually picked up to reread this week Think and Grow Rich napoleon hill because i feel like i always get something else and it's like every time i read it which this is only my second time through so i guess not every time there's just a lot of really good information in there so that and then it's another book that i was just given called the one thing and i can't think of who wrote that but that's really great too about focusing on just not letting all the chatter get to you and focusing on one thing at a time
0: lastly Who is your favorite person to follow on social media? So it could be someone that you get a lot of resources out of or someone that just maybe they do arts and crafts that you really enjoy.
1: So this changes depending on what I'm into, what I'm kind of feeling at the time, because I do have my specific financial people, but I'm not going to lie right now. My favorite person to follow on social media is a guy named Wim Hof. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's the Iceman. And he swears that you can boost your immune system through cold water therapy and does all this crazy stuff with ice baths and jumping in the Tahoe. But it makes a lot of sense. And he's just super entertaining. So that's been my quarantine little, what did Wim Hof post today?
0: (laughs) Yeah, check out Laird Hamilton. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Oh, I know who he is. Okay, awesome. Yeah, Yeah, him and Gabby Reese, they're big Mm -hmm. on the benefits of ice and he does crazy ice uh, yeah. baths, and he'll take exercise bikes in a sauna at 200 degrees and do all this crazy stuff. Tracy, thanks for joining us today. Where can we get in touch with you?
1: Sure. So our website is www.kellygreenwealth.com, and it's Kelly with no E and Green with an E, wealth.com. And anyone can always get in touch with me. The best email for me is tracy, T-R-A-C-I, at kellygreenwealth.com.
0: Thanks, Tracy. We appreciate your time and you coming here today.
1: Yeah, thanks, Tom. This was great.
0: Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.